Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Welcome, welcome. I am speaking listeners. Today we have the first of a very, very special series. You might have heard that Shayla Shea's birthday is the end of April, April 30th. She always loves her birthday. She loves her birthday month. It's a big deal. We celebrate as much as we can. And this month and this year, we have a podcast to celebrate that is going to be celebrating its one-year anniversary also. So in the month of April, I am bringing on surprise guests all month. We will not tell Shailushi I am not telling Shailushi who the guest is. They are not telling her that they are coming on. She doesn't know who the guest is until they come on for the episode that we, that they are going to be a guest for. So it's going to be really exciting. And so I'm doing the intro solo this month for this April birthday series, because I really wanted to preserve the excitement and joy and surprise that you hear when the guest is unveiled um, that comes from Shayla Shee. Today, we have a very, very special person, Shayla Shee, and this guest, her name is Beth Guerra, have been friends for going over three decades now. You will hear about how they met, how they have kept their friendship going for over 30 years and multiple states away. Beth is a veterinarian in Seattle, Washington. She talks to us about the current state of affairs in vet medicine. Also, she has done an incredible thing and started a brand new venture this year, January of 2022, on her birthday. And she is a verifiable expert in her field and really taking her expertise into what the needs are of the field of veterinary medicine. You will hear all of this and more in our episode of I Am Speaking April Series Birthday Surprises with Dr. Beth Guerra. Hi. Welcome, listeners. Um, 
for the month of April, this is 2022, I came up with what I think is a really good idea. We're going to figure out if it's a good idea. Um, Shailashi's birthday is at the very end of the month, April 30th. It is. So uh, we are taking an April term, an A term for those, you know, from Illinois Wesleyan or people who had those like one month, you know, classes. And we're going to do something kind of fun. Well, I think it's fun. And we're going to figure out if it is. <laughs> um, I'm bringing on surprise guests for Shea Lushi all month. And we have, I have five or six so far and possibly we'll see how many, we'll see how many we do. We don't want to wow. do like nine a week. It's going to be a know. busier month than normal. It is. It is. So these are people who are from Shailushi's universe, right? So someone who is connected to you, someone who is important to you, and they also have a story that fits in with the overall, you know, philosophy of the podcast. Do you have any ideas? Do you have any clues about who? No, I have no clue about who this person is. Well, first of all, it's impossible to be clues because on our, on our scheduling app, it basically says April series. So there's no like hints about who's there. I, I'm not involved with scheduling usually anyway, anyway. Right. and this time I haven't even been like, oh, we should talk to this person. So, there, and you've been, it's all, you know, hush hush. Like you haven't said anything to me. I'm trying not to give anything away. I'm not also going to bring someone on like a college professor who gave you a hard time, right? Like that you would be delighted to talk to also because it is your birthday. I'm not trying to make you miserable. Um, so we have our first guest for the April birthday series. And we already know we've had a bunch of your friends on last season. So yeah, <laughs> I'm going to bring this person on. Hold on. Okay. All right. Gonna... Do you want me to close my eyes or something? Yeah, let's do that. Hold on. Not yet. Okay. Hold on. All right. Ready? Okay. Close your eyes and then I'm going to make sure that their audio's on. Okay. And then we will. Okay, please don't make me guess. No, I'm not going to. I'm okay, not going to. Okay. I'm not going to. Okay, okay. All right, good. All right. One, two, three. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, this is fun. <laughs> By the way, before I forget to say congratulations, I'm so proud of you. Looks like the clinic is just oh like gangbusters. Yeah, we are gonna we are gonna talk about that. We are gonna talk about. Okay, that. all right, all right. <laughs> Before we get too far afield, listeners, our listeners can't see her. <laughs> Today's amazing guest, April series guest, is my roommate from high school, Beth Guerra, <laughs> and my one of my bestest friends. I've known Beth. 30 years. Are we looking at 30? No, more than yeah, that. Yeah, no, yeah, like 15. Yeah. When you Easily. were, you're saying when you were 15. Yeah. We met when we were 15. Yeah. So IMSA. Yeah. Wow. So 31 years. Beth is, she's one of her oldest friends and um, now is from Illinois mm -hmm. and now lives out in Seattle, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. And they have kept in touch for over 30 years and she, she had no idea that uh, you were coming on. <laughs> <laughs> well. I've been keeping the secret for like what a couple of weeks at least. Like it's hard, you know, it's hard for me to keep secrets. I'm like, do not <laughs> do not impart any information to me that you want kept under wraps. It's not gonna happen. 
So I thought we could go over a little bit of your history, what makes you guys, you know, click and why you're special to Shilashi. And then also talk about what you're doing because you're doing something that is taking expertise in a really innovative way. And um, yeah, we can- Trying to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, trying to. Well, that's that's all innovation is, is right? Like yeah, crossing your right. fingers and be like, I hope this Yeah, works. it's called making it up and Googling a lot is really what it is. <laughs> well, the other thing that's really awesome Best parents for first generation Italian immigrants. Like, I didn't know that. So her no. grandparents on both sides were immigrants from Italy. And so her mom grew up very much the same way that we did. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember stories about her mom saying, like, I would sneak out and go smoking and this. Oh, and she that. was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you guys really like you bonded over that. And our friend Phil also, whose parents were um like Korean immigrants all bonded over being like first generation kids. And I remember when you guys like in high school, you know, you're always clashing against your parents and struggling. And my mom was like, Hey, listen, this is what I went through. But yeah, she was like very rebellious. Yeah. Like, very rebellious. She's the complete opposite of me. Yeah. She would, she would like sneak out the window to go smoking and like riding with boys and like, you know, cause it was like the fifties and the sixties and yeah, all the things that my grandma hated. <laughs> of course. So we know you went to uh, you went to a boarding or a residential high school. That's where we met. We hit it off right away. Unless my memory is completely wrong, like we hit it <laughs> off right away. Beth no, was like, "Yeah, oh, I fucking hated you." <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. No, I could have been fairly obnoxious. I remember when I met pretty much all of my closest friends at IMSA, and I remember. So I remember when I met you. I was sitting in the like the RC room talking to, it's probably Mary Beth, who was my RC at the time. And like, you came in and you were like in your awesome, like your little soccer gear <laughs> and you introduced yourself. And I'm like, oh, this girl's cool. <laughs> and then we were, I think in the like laundry room one day. And I remember you were just like doing laundry and you were just talking. And I was like, this person <laughs> is so interesting. And I remember you took your, remember the, the, like the blue dorm cards we used to like click in and out you like took the vent out of the like dryer and you're like shoo, 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 and you used your <laughs> card to like swipe off the dryer lint and that stuck with me and I like still do that sometimes I will like grab a card and go shoo, shoo, and like <laughs> just scrape off dry it was just like so efficient and economical and well see you you did a life hack before there was a hashtag for it holy cow we were this was so long ago like the internet hadn't been invented I mean like the internet was invented like I believe when we were in high school it was 94 95 when we graduated and yeah that was right about the time Netscape right came in line and all that stuff yeah 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 oh we're so old <laughs> we've talked to a few of your old colleagues right Ann Chen was on um Jason Krebs Darshan Darshan and we've heard everyone's story a little bit about like why they came, why they went to IMSA. We know why she she went to IMSA. Um, can you talk a little bit about like the decision why you went to IMSA? Oh, so this was weird. I, I wasn't even aware of it. And I had like a seventh, eighth grade teachers in, you know, I was like in the gifted program or whatever. And I say that in air quotes because there were like 10 of us. And this teacher told my parents about it and said, I think she should apply. I think we should work on this. I think it would be a great opportunity. They sort of spin it as a math and science academy. I hated math. I was in gifted math, but I hate, I was like, it scares me. But like, I liked the sciences and I was very geeky like that. 
Um, so I had this really great teacher who sort of spurred me on. I think, did you have to take the SATs or something crazy? You had to do something crazy, write essays. You had to have, it was like a college application. You had to have teacher recommendations. And this teacher really like put her foot forward for me and, and Christina. And, and we both got waitlisted out of eighth grade. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, so that, and then that obviously didn't. So then we both went to Libertyville High School and then tried again. And then obviously we were in, and I think that was good. I don't know. I don't know how well I would have adapted had I been like a 13, 14 year old being yeah. shot right into high school. I don't know. It, it was, I loved Libertyville. It was great. It was a huge school. It was great to have that experience, but that, so that's how that ended up. <laughs> did you see what they call them? Schmens, right? Like, did you see them struggle socially being like a year when you're 13, 14, 15? That's a lot more that's than huge. when we're like 42, 43, 44. The other layer I'll put on that is if you are, if you were good enough to get into IMSA at when you're eighth grader, I don't want to say for sure, but there's a high likelihood that you are dealing with some additional neurodiversity issues. Um, and even without that, like Beth and I will, you know, I think we could stake a big percentage of our reputation on saying there's a big percentage of our class who was, had some sort of neuro, neurodiversity challenge that back in the 90s and 80s, no one even thought about addressing. Right. And it was hard enough for people who were 14 going into sophomore year, who'd already been, their fresh, you know, been through freshmen in their hometowns. It was hard enough for people, period. A lot of people came in and left in one year. Did they really? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Because, of, so here, see, here's my take. I was, you know, in the gifted program, but I just, and I, Yes, you're gifted, but like you, I worked really hard. I worked really hard. I was a very studious person. I studied all the time. I loved school, whatever. When you go from sort of the upper echelon of that public high school where you're gifted and you get moved into this population at IMSO, which is like funneling in all of the top applicant, like then you go to like the bottom, so to speak. I mean, we were surrounded by true genius. Yeah. Several, like we had several friends that were genius level very very gifted people and I'm like I'm not even on par with this and that's fine I'm not a genius um like I said I just I worked really hard and I really like the math and sciences whatever but these people I think they they struggle you know you're you're so smart some of them were smarter than their teachers <laughs> and when you do that thing where you come in very young and you were already maybe a social pariah at your junior high or whatever because you were brilliant and you just cannot even compete on the same level as these people. You're just so far above, you're bored in your classes, you know? So I think, and then they get moved to this environment and then it's just kind of even more awkward. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, we had a few friends that we knew that were younger and they did great. But then there were some that I think really struggled. And then you add living away from home as a child, like half of these students had never done their own laundry or hadn't gotten themselves out of bed to class without the aid of a parent like it's tough when i went to college it was you know the freshman 15 or whatever like regulating how much i ate when i ate it and just having food available yeah. to you <laughs> being able to be like oh i'm gonna get all of the fruit loops because i never was able to get fruit loops as a 13 14 year old right and there was i remember this in the cafeteria there was like a milkshake machine right was there not a milkshake yeah. machine at some point and then there were you could get fries 
every meal has price. And especially I had, we had some friends that were, you know, vegetarians at the time. And again, like early nineties, that's super novel. The cafeteria was like, what do you mean you don't eat meat? So they would just eat plates and plates of fries for every meal because there were no real food options for them. So um, did I go crazy on French fries and milkshakes? Absolutely. For the first month. And then I was over it. You know, you and I come from similar backgrounds. Your mom is not an immigrant, but your mom's a first gen. And our mom did not sneak out to go smoking. No, but I did sneak. I mean, I didn't sneak out, but I tried to sneak out. I tried to do things without our parents knowing. Yeah. Well, for me, it was like, wait, nobody's going to demand. I don't have to justify why I'm leaving campus or where I'm going. I can just write in a book. I'm going here with these people and I'm, so I'm getting there and I'll be back and cool. And everyone's like, that's cool. I can't believe they trusted us. But I think for some people, that kind of regulation and rules was actually too much too. You know, I can imagine if you grew up, who's, oh God, I can't remember his name. Zane. Do you remember a kid named Zane? Yeah. Right. He left after the first year. Yeah. He grew up in a situation where there wasn't a caregiver all the time at home paying attention. So he could go out and do whatever he wanted on certain days. Nobody was there to pay attention. So it was actually more restrictive on campus. In single family households, it's like if a person's working from nine to six, you don't have to account for yourself at all. Then it is actually far more restrictive. And especially as a sophomore, you'd have to have like a post-dinner check like you'd have to be in your wing lounge and they would make sure you were there. Seven o'clock check-ins. It was, there was the right. roll call. So is it like you're really hoping that you like the people in your dorm because you spent a lot of time with, it's like in, in Hogwarts, right? Like it's your house. So you spend a lot of time with them. Oh, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, I was in the same dorm, same wing all three years, but 10 o'clock was the like all dorm curfew. So, yeah, you know, you had your little key card and the dorms were like, segregated by gen like they were not co-ed and so at 10 o'clock if you weren't in the dorm like your key card would block you out it would not let you in and you'd get in massive trouble yeah 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 and this was a this was another thing right so you could as a do what they called vi- visitation which is you could sign up a person into your room <laughs> the door had to be open but like opposite sex visitation was allowed, but it had to be accounted for. And it, it was only an hour and you could get it right. renewed if the person on duty felt like it was okay. One time there was, in, we were in the middle of a huge argument and neither one of us wanted to stop and go down and get the pass renewed. So we just kept going. So we came down like an hour or hour and 15 minutes late. And they're like, we have to revoke your intervis, intervisitation privileges for the next week. And I was like, that's fine. We were having an argument. Like I didn't know what to say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're like, actually you're doing me a favor right now. So yeah. And you know, that was, that was also for like, you know, couples and significant others, but also for study groups. If you had a study group or a project or something that was, you know, co-ed and you had, you know, you lived in an all female dorm and you had some males in your group, like they would have to sign in and get the pet. So yeah, you're doing your project, you're doing your homework, whatever, every hour you got to run down. Reasonable, I thought for me, um, when you're, a, you know, like I said, a child, a young person living away from home with no parents and I didn't think it was unreasonable, but yeah, there were definitely some students that came from like 
inner city Chicago and they were used to like riding the transit system by themselves and all sorts of things you do as a young person that you don't give a second thought about. But then this this institution was like, no, you shall check in at 7.30 and you know, you will have the 10 o'clock curfew and the consequences were severe if you got locked out. And I mean, people were sneaking out of windows in the dead of night going, remember someone like it had snowed? Oh, and they like, said that. The prints of the footprints from like I one do remember that. to the other. Like it was like, come on guys. So we were really, Beth and I were very early. We were the fifth class to graduate oh, from gosh, IMSA. Yeah we, yeah, we were very, very early in the IMSA history. Um, but if you look through the student uh, code <laughs> of conduct, you would tell where they had to make a rule because somebody did it. Yeah, we were like, it feels like you can pin that rule on that person. <laughs> and that, that's because of that There was person. some rule that you cannot go into the ceiling tiles. I remember that so clearly. Oh. Who went in the ceiling tiles? Well, you could could climb across and get out. It wasn't even like like the male to female dorms. Like I remember, so the dorms were laid out like an H shape. So there were four wings, right? And then in the middle was like the common room area. Um, And then each little wing, you also had your own key card. So like, again, if you were traditional gender roles, if you were a girl, your girl key card would let you into all girl dorms, all girl wings, right? Same thing with the boys. Your key card could get you into any dorm, into the common room, but it couldn't get you into the wing of an opposite gender. That's when you have the intervals pass. So, so, but I remember, because um, I think the first year, like I was an A wing and you were across, were you C? I don't, you, no, you'd be D wing. So like they were across and like, you, so you would go upstairs, right? So there was kind of like a, like a, not a skyway, whatever. And the, so like in, within the girls' dorms or whatever, and I'm sure the boys' dorms as well, like you would open the door and then your friend from another wing would like run across. So you would have sleepovers after hours. <laughs> I don't think the doors would like alarm, but if you were visibly seen running from one wing to the other, you're also breaking curfews, even though you're not going to a boys' dorm, you know? Like, yeah, just- so if you're, yeah, that's best right. If you were a girl, you could get into any, female wing dorm until 10 p.m. And at 10 p.m. you could, had to be in your wing because if you left your wing, you couldn't get back in. You could, however, like if you could get special permission from the resident counselor, like I need to work on my Uh paper. Right, right, right. And this is before everyone had a computer in the room. So there were four, there was a computer lab in every dorm. And so if you like needed to work on something from 10 to 11, you'd, you would have to get special permission and then they would let you back in, but you couldn't just let yourself back in. Like, so, I mean, just reflecting on that though, I really hate the like terminology of like going off to war, but there is definitely something like, we're all in this together. We're all experiencing the same, um, you know, sort of, struggle to find ourselves to figure out how to talk to people right like that's the other thing like you had a roommate at 15 that you're living with all the time and you got to figure out how to talk to that person and negotiate with that person and you know maybe they stay up late and you're go to bed early or whatever it is you know how do you handle classes and we had a long day it was 7 30 to 4 30 or 7 to 4 30 it was a long day this was weird. I was trying to explain this to someone a couple months ago and the, the concept was like mind blowing. We had like an eight, seven day, 
rotating schedule. So we had like A, B, C, six days. Yeah, A, B, C, D. Yeah, so your first day was A day, then B, you know, so it was a Monday through Friday. And then the next Monday was an X day, which was like a free day. I, was it junior and senior year? We could do like independent studies or like research projects. It was very accelerated. So, and then, so the next week, Tuesday was an A day and then Wednesday was a B day, but your schedules were different every day. Like A day, maybe you had all your classes and B day, you would have like double history or double math or like some, so then you'd have like two straight hours of the same topic. And it was very weird and still reminding me of Hogwarts. They had double, they had double potions, double charms. <laughs> you know what? I think when I first read those books that did cross my mind was, wow, this was a lot. This was a lot like our experience. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was really, it was really similar. Yeah. It's like you take a bunch of like socially awkward gifted children and you smash them in this, this bubble together take away parental guidance. It was definitely weird. It was weird. People always ask, and my mom used to ask me this. She said, would you do it over again? And I'd said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It so much shaped who I, who I am now, but also knowing now what I know, could I have done that again? We just threw ourselves into it and had faith. People all the time ask me if I would do vet school over. I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. And no veterinarian I know would opt to take the same career path again. Well, and that's, I mean, us throwing ourselves into it and being like, it's fine. We're going to figure it out. That is like, that's the folly of youth, right? We're just like, and I've said this before, and maybe this is like been why, like at the beginning of IMSA, like, well, how hard can it be? Pretty hard. Actually. Sometimes it's very hard. My parents, our parents were very strict. Even in high school, I had a nine- 30 curfew like the the social life that we I had at IMSA at least was not possible at home right I truly believe that going to IMSA allowed me to preserve a good relationship with my parents absolutely and the other thing about it is I get to I get to meet all these you know I met people like you that I have been friends with for 30 plus years who've known me since I was awkward or <laughs> But yeah, no, and, and knowing your parents and again, knowing that immigrant experience, like my mom, like for me, she was like, go get out of the house. Like she didn't even, it wasn't even a second thought. She was like, leave. Um, it's a great opportunity. Get out. We're, you know, we're fighting you all with teenagers, mothers fight with their daughters. But I think, yeah, for you, I think your parents needed that. Okay. The oldest child is going to go off into the ether and have her experiences and to relinquish that control for them must've been hard. And, and for my mom, it was like, because she was that child. She was the one whose mom would chase her around the house with broom because she snuck out the window to smoke on the stoop with a boy. I don't know. Just these are the stories I heard. So it's like, I, yeah, I think our, our parents all had different reasons, but um, yeah, it was funny. Like the, like, so in our block growing up, like the Guerra household was where all the neighborhood kids hung out and like where the food was <laughs> like my dad is constantly feeding people. And I remember one time I maybe was in college and you had stopped over it was 10 or something at night and we were going to visit. And my dad was like, Shayla, are you hungry? I'm gonna make you steak. You made her a steak. And like, <laughs> yeah. She, he made you like a whole dinner. How, I have a question for you. I don't think we've ever talked about this in particular. So, you know, I, 
I know a lot, some about your mom's experience growing up and, and your experience with your mom, but how do you have a sense for how your mom's experience influenced her parenting of you and your brother? Yeah, I, I swear it was do exactly the opposite of what, I mean, we weren't, we had a great childhood. We weren't like wild children running around. We were very responsible, but she was very open and very accepting and very loving of not only us, but like all the, the neighborhood children and like the little misfits. And I think that was just because of, she did have that very strict upbringing. Definitely. Well, it, it was, I can imagine it would be strange, but I know I've told you this before and I'm sure Phil has too, is like your mom was a safe person to talk to about the things that, he, you know, Phil and I were likely going through that we could not talk to our parents about. Yeah. Like I, could, I couldn't talk to my parents about dating. I couldn't, I wasn't supposed to be dating. I know. <laughs> so, and there was a whole set of brouhaha's when they found out I was dating, you know, I, she was a person I could talk to about the stuff I was going through where I could certainly couldn't talk to my parents or really anyone on my aunts and uncles. Like nobody had that experience. And she definitely, she thought of you and Phil, and just all of you as like her, you know, part of the, the children, part of the Surrogate family. family. Right. Right. Even to this day that uh, whenever Beth is in town, there are plans for me to get together with her and her dad. Because my dad will feed you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's, like, he's, like, he's, going, he's like, bring, bring Shilushi over. I'm going to make a ham. I'm like, dad. <laughs> That's not why I get together with your dad, but I do love him so much. And he is, your parents were surrogate parents to me. For yeah. They, like I said, they were, they were great parents. And this is very weird because I have several friends here that, um, that I am learning to do not have that relation, you know, like that you had, that your family has and that my family had. And I have one of my close friends is getting married and her parents are not coming to the wedding. And it's, it's going to be in Hawaii, which is a bit of a haul, but they're sort of like, you're being selfish. You're making this very inconvenient for us. And it just blows my mind. What, what parent wouldn't hop on a plane? I don't know. And other people that prefer to spend Thanksgiving, like when, you know, my late husband and I used to host the Friendsgiving with 20 people in the house. It would just be like misfits of people that live here and don't have family nearby or were estranged from their family. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't talk to your parents? What I talk to my mom every week before she died, like every week, just to chat, not in a weird way. I would just like be coming off a night shift and just wanted to tell her something. And even now, like I call my dad, you know, he lives alone and we're both like, we're in the widow's club as I call it. And, you know, just to check up on him and like, we still talk and he's very interested in the day to day. And it blows my mind that that's how naive I was, that not everyone has that relationship with their parents where they can just like call them on the way to the store and chat. Or, or that they don't want to. Or they're trying and their parents shut it down. It breaks my heart. I mean, my parents are, are, and were my support system and friends. Where did you go to college? So I Vanderbilt. went to, huh? Oh, Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. No. That's where you went to vet school? No. Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Nobody's heard of it. Not like Rhodes Scholar, like Rhodes College. It's this tiny, 
I remembered it was in Tennessee, but I think I just like put it together. Like no, oh Vanderbilt. Way more. There must only be one school in Tennessee, and that's no. no. I went to. This is so weird. So I applied. You know, I applied to all the whatever Ivy League stuff. Didn't get in. I applied to U of I, and I was like, this was me. I was like, I'm gonna go there eventually for vet school. So I don't. I don't want to be <laughs> for eight years. No. So I went to Rhodes because it was a small liberal arts college in the South, and they gave me like a ton of scholarship money. It's in the South and that is a whole different world. And I was not prepared for that. I was one of maybe five people in my class north of the Mason-Dixon line. Wow. It was, um, it was a huge culture shock. I mean, I went to school, I went to class in like, oh man, sweat, not sweatpants, but like jeans, a flannel, because it was the nineties and like a ball cap. And these women in this class, because this is a dress to the nine skirt, pantyhose, full makeup hair. And I was like, Oh no, I'm out of my league. Like, I do not know how to put makeup on to this day. I mean, my mom was always <laughs> like, you really got to learn. So I remember watching my roommates just get up at five o'clock in the morning to prepare physically for class for like an eight o'clock class. I can imagine like if you have to wash and wash and set your hair and do your makeup and blah, blah, blah. Like, no. But eventually, yeah. So the first year was tough. And then eventually I found a niche with a bunch of other kind of nerds and geeks. We were all chemistry majors. So there were like very few of us. The And then I sort of fast tracked out of there, so to speak. I never graduated from college. And the listeners, <laughs> that's much better than you think it is. <laughs> I wish our listeners could have seen your face. Cause you're like, ah, uh, like it's, you're kind of questioning and like, I don't know. Right. I do not have a bachelor's from Rhodes. So there is a loophole, at least back in that time for the university of Illinois college of vet med, you, you could apply, right. If you had a certain number, it was like 32 credits, biology, 16 physics, 16 chemistry, blah, 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 enough liberal arts, all this stuff. So I remember I, I had a veterinarian that I knew locally in the area that I would volunteer. And he said, try to stack your credits early, whatever, take like the VCAT, which is like the MCAT, but it doesn't even exist anymore, I think, as a dry run. So as a junior, I because I was biochem and I was tracking, I had all those crazy credits all, already under my belt. I said, I'm going to do this as a dry run. I'm going to apply to vet school. I got my letters of rec. I took the VCAD, which was terrifying. And then I got invited for an interview and I went, oh, no. Dry run, dry run. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I did the interview and then I thought, okay, well, that's under my belt. Um, So then I remember going to the mailroom one day in the spring. It was like right before my, my PCHEM class, my physical chemistry class, which I was floundering in. I got this letter and it was like the skinny letter. So you're like, I don't know. And I opened it and it was like, we are pleased to offer you acceptance of the class of 2001. And I lost my mind and I went screaming into my chemistry class, all eight of us sitting there. <laughs> and I was a junior level and I'm like, there I got it. And I'm like, I'm not coming to this class ever. Like, <laughs> Did you just go in there to mic drop and say like, see you bitches. And you just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my professor, I remember he was standing at the, the front of the room, like just shaking his head. But yeah, I mean, I it, in, in my head, I was like, I'm golden. I don't have to go to class for the rest of the semester. That's not what happened. <laughs> and then after your first year in your graduate courses at U of I, I got to, to walk in the ceremony and I have a, I have a bachelor's of science in veterinary medicine, which is 
kind of like a, it's not a bullshit degree, but you know what I mean? It's not, <laughs> not what I was striving for. So yeah, I had three years of undergrad and four years of vet school. So I was a bit younger than, yeah, there were, there were three or four of us that had sort of done that accelerated, like just didn't really graduate thing and were a bit younger. And then I had some older classmates as well. I had some in their forties, but they had done careers and lives and then came back to it and said, I'm not happy in publishing or engineering or whatever I was doing. And then we had a few people that had applied year after year after year to multiple schools. I mean, I'm a fluke. Like I applied one time to one college and got in. That doesn't, you, you cast a wide net and you hope, I don't know how many med schools are, but at the time there were only about, I want to say 17 or 20 veterinary schools. And for every one spot, there were 120 applicants. I mean, oh, it's- wow. It's probably changed now. I don't know the statistics, but at the time it was considered a massive achievement if you could get in anywhere. And then I had a classmate who applied seven times, seven consecutive years to at least five schools and finally, and he just kept going and finally got in. Wow. Wow. That, that takes a lot of spirit. Yeah. I was going to say that person really wanted to be a veterinarian. And I remember this vividly in the interview and they said, what, what would you do if you didn't get into vet school. And I was like, I, I'd apply again. And they sort of chuckled. Like, I think they were thinking like, what other <laughs> career? And they, they said, no, but like, what would you do? And I was like, no, I'd want to apply again. That was a good answer. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like that. I didn't know what they were looking for. Cause I, I have no other skills. I would be like, I, I'll read some books about dogs instead. Like I don't <laughs> need to do this for seven years in a row. <laughs> I'm one of those nerds that like from the age of four ish on, knew I wanted to be, I don't know how it got planted in my head, but my mom remembers me saying at four and five, I'm going to be a veterinarian. I don't even know if I knew what that word was. And I remember (laughs) this is okay. This is nerd flash. My brother had his appendix out when he was young, like eight or seven. And there was a show and tell at my middle school. And I brought his IV fluid bag empty IV fluid bag with the fluid line. And on it, I had written cure for FIV. And I was like, I want to be a veterinarian. This is a show and tell. And I'm like, I'm going to invent a, a cure for FIV. And it was like this whole thing. And so my like teachers banded onto that. And I, I have so many colleagues now leaving the, the profession, which horrifies me because after all this work and all this sacrifice and all the things you do to build a career, like, why are you walking away? Because I do not have any other marketable skills. Like I have not, I'm nothing. I don't even have a degree in anything that means anything. Right. Like what could I go do? I'm very pigeonholed. What do you think that's about? Like it's, I mean, we're hearing a lot more about it, uh, in the last couple of years, last three years, one, because people can't get appointments because everyone has a dog now. Oh, this isn't just a two-year trend because of COVID, the exit rate from veterinary medicine, or unfortunately the suicide rate for vets is very high. It's the highest among all the professions uh, of veterinarians and veterinary professionals uh, taking their own lives. Absolutely. There's a whole like Facebook page called not another vet or like not one more vet or something. I'm not on Facebook, but uh-huh. here, here's what it breaks down to. And like everybody's profession is hard. And I think with veterinarians, the level of it's called compassion burnout is massively high, right? Somebody asked me once how many euthanasias I do per day. And when I was working emergency, like 
five to 10. That's five to 10 pet lives you are taking per day. Now, whether or not you can emotionally and physically remove yourself from it is beside the point. It still kind of makes your heart cold and black. So like there are only so many times you can cry and there are only so, so many times you can sympathize with a family you may or may not know. And it is, it's just, it's exhausting. And then the caretaking aspect of it um, in all fields, again, but especially in emergency medicine, you're taking care of the sickest of the sick and sometimes they die. And just the amount of care that goes into these pets is massive. Interacting with their human owners is very draining. You know, when, when you're, pet is that ill, like you just, it's constant explaining and re-explaining. And then it's just the whole being overworked, underpaid. Like if you compare us to our medical, like our MD counterparts, same amount of schooling, Mm -hmm. almost same amount of debt, about a fourth of the pay, if that, right. And your veterinary support staff, your technicians, just peanuts. They make peanuts for what they do. And they are like your nurses, like you're, you know, how you love your nurse. Cause your nurses are the ones who hold your hand and explain things and give you ants. Like even my mom's onco nurses and, and Nate's onco nurses were like amazing. Cause you never got to talk to the doctor. Mm-hmm. These, these kids, and I call oh, there are a lot of them are kids, um, are just putting their heart and soul into it. And unfortunately the lifespan of anyone in this profession, I think is like seven to 10 years. And then peace out. The lifespan of an emergency doctor is eight years. And I've been at it 20 years. Like I, so you've only done an ER vet for most of my career. So I was in a general practice for like almost two years, but it was like a really busy walk-in practice when that model was new. So it was very fast paced. And then I would moonlight at a clinic in Arlington Heights as an ER doctor. Cause I knew that's what I wanted to kind of slide into. So I would go work all day. I would work 10 hours in that shift and my day practice, go home, pick up my dog, go to the overnight clinic, work overnight, try to catch a nap and then go back to work the next day. Um, and then when I moved to Seattle in 2003, I went to like an emergency specialty clinic and then you rotate, but a lot of your shifts are overnights. And then after the first year, I basically did all overnights for four years. And it, oh, it wow. does things to you. I mean, anyone that does shift work, you know, like this, all this gray hair, <laughs> all the bags under my eyes, the weight I've gained, the stress I'm under, like it's all overnights. And then I went to another clinic and another ER clinic. And it's like, so from 2003 to just this past year, I have been doing emergency. I love it. And I can't, I did dabble back in general practice and it's, it's not for me. It's not for me. I am ER true and true, but it, it, it really takes its toll. And in this climate, it's, yes, it's COVID, it's curbside service, it's everybody adopted a pet and there aren't enough veterinarians. There's a nationwide shortage. Um, people screaming at you about the wait times, things that are beyond your control. I mean, it's exhausting, you know, and a lot of people just like pieced out of the profession this past year. It's like you're already on the edge and then basically, you know, it's like you just add one more thing that's, you just can't deal with it. I'm going to have a sweeping generalization here, but people do not afford veterinarians and veterinary para staff the same respect that they give medical doctors. Your medical doctor, you just put them up on this pedestal. You treat them like a God, whatever they say. Yes, doctor. Yes, doctor. There's no questions. There's no challenging veterinarians. It's 
I need your cell number. If you, they want to text you after, don't ever do that. They want to text you after hours. Um, you send blood work out. You tell them it'll be back in three to five days. They're calling the next day, demanding the results, saying you absolutely told me they was B in here. And you're like, you're, I didn't though. Um, they stand in the lobby and they scream at my front of house staff about wait times, about costs. It's like, would you do this, you know, at your doctor? Would you do this at a Starbucks? Like, why do you, why do you have to treat these people like subhuman? That's my problem. My mom worked retail for decades, you know, Morton Taylor, Marshall Fields, and she would come home and just cry. And people just treated her like lesser than, like dirt. And I, my my colleague Lori and I that started this clinic, we're like, we are gonna change this paradigm. We are gonna try to reshape the way people interact with veterinarians and veterinary staff. Um, we're gonna teach them better manners, dare I say. And we do not tolerate the people standing up front, throwing charts. I had a woman when I worked overnights, a woman client, like chucked a thing of creamer at a, a reception. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Like, we're here to help you. So yeah, that, that kind of stuff will, will absolutely just burn you out of the profession. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. I could see the parallel here. Cause I do think that people afford their medical specialists, a lot of respect. I feel like people think about sort of mainstream veterinarians as the internal medicine doctors for animals and the internal medicine doctors get like, always get paid comparative peanuts to specialists and they get treated like crap. Like people don't listen to them, right? It's like, you're supposed to X, Y, and Z. They never do it. They argue, well, do I write all of this stuff? I just, okay, so I was visiting a friend and they had to pick their dog up from the vet. This was in Arizona years ago. And we were waiting for the, them to bring out the paperwork. And these people run in, seriously coked out of their minds with two ferrets. Oh. And the ferrets were bleeding out of their nose because the ferrets had got into the cocaine. Not the craziest thing I've heard. But I do remember them screaming at the staff this lady did not give your ferrets the cocaine. So everyone needs to relax. <laughs> you get people like are lying to you about what happened or what's happening or like you're very obviously like you, this cat has not been taking their medicine or something. Yeah, you know, this is the big things. And I would say like lying mostly out of embarrassment, but here's the biggest thing. Like an animal comes in after their spay and their incision is open and you say, are you wearing, is your pet wearing the e-collar we put? Yeah, all the time. Clearly, like, you can't lie to me. Like, I know there's <laughs> chew marks, right? Like, I know that. Or my favorite one, and this is um, since, so marijuana became legal in the state of Washington, I don't even know, a handful of years ago. And it was like the minute that law dropped, it was like, bam, 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 bam. Every case was a stone dog. And a stone dog looks like a stone dog. Like, they are very specific set of symptoms, right? Their pupils dilate, they um, dribble urine. That's a fun fact. Um, and they're what's called hyperesthetic. So they're super like jumpy and reactionary, but then if you leave it alone, they start to wobble and then like fall asleep. So they look like what you would expect, but people just hysteria and they come in and, you know, my, my triage tech will come back and be like, there's a pot dog outside. <laughs> if you ask him on the house, they swear there's no pot in the house. So I go in the room and I'm like, listen, you know, I'm not a narc. A, that's not my job. B, it's legal. I don't care, you know? So I'll, I'll have to be like, is there, 
is there any possibility your pet got into marijuana? And they're like, oh, well, a friend, like eyes are darting. Oh, there's a, well, we had a friend visit and they might, and I'm just like, listen, either you fess up about the marijuana. First of all, your dog's going to be fine. Nine times out of 10, they're going to ride it out. They're going to sleep and then get up and get a snack. But like, you lie to me. If you lie to me, then I'm like, okay, well then it's probably something more serious. And maybe your pet has an underlying neurologic disorder. And now we have to do a bunch of expensive tests and may need to go for an MRI. And then they backtrack and they're like, oh, well, yeah, we did have some brownie, you know? And it's like, why are you lying to me? Well, especially when you've been like, well, now we have to do a bunch of expensive tests and we have to do an MRI and you're just like, um, people, it's like, Ching, ching, ching. Never mind. No pot. Yes. It's- <laughs> Again, mostly harmless, unless it's in my case. The case I had was the dog that ate two pans of pot brownies made with like a homemade THC butter. So that stuff packs a punch. That dog was in a coma, but did fine. But just had to like process it. Cho- but there's chocolate in there too, right? Yes. Yeah. That's why those are bad. Um. So that dog went straight from, and the guy didn't even know. So he made it. He burnt the brownies, tossed them in the compost pile out back. That's a huge thing in Seattle, compost, by the way. Dog ate compost pile, including brownies. So that dog, and that guy also took a while to get the story out of, because one, he didn't know, because the dog came in and she was super high and wobbly. And I'm like, listen, marijuana. He's like, no, no, there's no chance. And then the dog went into like full-blown seizures and then like kind of like went into respiratory arrest. So lost her airway. We had to intubate her. She was on a ventilator for a while. We did intralipids, this whole thing. Um, she got out of it, but then two days, two days into this, he came down and was like, dude, you gotta just get, go through your house, anything. And he goes, you know what? I made these brownies and it was homemade THC butter, which is very, very strong. And brownies plus chocolate plus marijuana equals Plus two whole and coma. Yeah. So he had gone out <laughs> to the compost bin and saw that, you know. I do, I do want to say when you said like the dog had to process it, I'm thinking like <laughs> existentially. Like this dog is like, okay, so I'm smarter than this guy. What do I do about it? Like I have a very dumb owner. I feel like it's one thing to lie to your doctor because you're you know, it's like you're gonna you're seeing the judgment come at you, or you anticipate jump judgment coming directly at you, like. Like, and you have complete control over like, should I eat this pan of brownies or no? And then you go to your doctor and they're like, why are your, no, you know, why, why is your diabetes out of control? And you're like, well, I don't know. You know, brownies. Like, yeah. You can't lie to your doctor. Your doctor knows there are certain things that you cannot lie about anyway. But I think unless you are dog fighting your dogs or, or there's like a set of things that are like a handful of things that are like super irresponsible for pet owners, pet parents to do, unless you're doing that, then like, I don't understand what the judgment is. Animals are animals, they do things. They do things and I don't, I don't know if the fear of like people being reported to the authority, like let's be clear in my 21 years of being a veterinarian now, I, I mean, I think twice have I called in a case to animal cruelty, like it's not, if you bring in a pet that ate pop brown, I'm not going to report you to the police. I don't care. Yeah. Right. I'm here to help your pet. So I think people are, maybe they're driven by that fear that there's some like over like omniscient, like veterinary judgment. Board. I don't know that they're going to get a call from a police officer. It's like the bro code, but it's the vet. Seriously. Yeah. Like I don't care if your pet got into your Adderall. It happens all the time. Pets chew things. Like, I'm not going to report you. Right. If it's right, an right, obvious right. cruelty case, yes, I have had those. 
and you gotta, you know, you gotta call it in. We've had hoarders and all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's like, I'm thinking like dog fighting or like hoarding or like animal abuse. There's like, there's like- Yeah, a just not even abuse, like, like neglect. Like we, yeah, we do, we've had like a couple in the ER where it's been, you know, like the police came in, whatever, but it's not, it's not the norm. Pets do stuff. My dog chews the drywall. She eats pillows. Like I can't control her. I probably should, but yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, which is like, okay, your dog has a wound. Bring it, bring Dogs it get wounds. Right, like, yeah, right. how did it happen? Sometimes the answer is, I don't I know. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Because my dog was fucking around outside. And then, you know, our, my, well, you know her too, Dawn, my other best friend, one of my other best friends often talks about like one of the challenges of having a dog is that they will eat stuff like what she calls the gutter chili. <laughs> that's a good one. That's like a catch-all term for like all the crap, like the gross stuff that's like we're under bushes and like another friend's dog ate a person's shit and that person had been doing pot and that dog got stoned. Oh, totally. I've seen those. Yeah. Eating the poop is a, yeah, no. So like, that's a dog, right? Like how, dogs are going to dog. You were being responsible. Your dog went over there, was sniffing something and ate it before you could take it out of their mouth. These are my favorite cases. This is horrible. I love to make dogs vomit, like making dogs. <laughs> Tell us about that. Inducing emesis in dogs is like a, it's like Christmas morning. Okay. I, first of all, I love that you went from, I love to make dogs puke to inducing emesis in dogs. <laughs> in the canine species <laughs> um so make i mean if you google like there are a million videos and youtubes of just like puppies vomiting the puppy that vomits up the little squeaky shark you're like how did you do that i had a dog vomit up a 12 inch softball once you're like how how is this happening so we had these two um ridiculously adorable labradors that came into our urgent care yesterday that had eaten what again it's always one of the two right somebody ate the grapes <laughs> We don't know, for those of you who know, grapes and raisins can cause kidney issues in dogs. So we have this um, super cool new drug that you, you put a drop in their eye and then you stare at them for 20 minutes and then they eventually vomit. This dog vomited, one of the dogs vomited, nothing. We're like, great, no grapes. The other dog just, and it was like grapes rolling across the floor. <laughs> like they're the grapes, like she didn't even chew them. Just went straight down the gullet. And then, and this is the fun part, you put a glove on and you get a tongue depressor and you pick through the puke because you got to see what's in there. You got to count grapes. Like she ate five grapes off my toddler's plate, right? This dog yacked up like potatoes, chunks of salami. We were like, is that salami? Um, plastic wrap, uh, a little like butterfly eraser. Like, I don't even know. Like you're just, you're... <laughs> You guys, this dog has like dog pika, just like eating everything. <laughs> dog, and, and it's a funny thing is then you go tell the owner, you're like, well, you know, but this dog had a smorgasbord in her stomach. And sometimes they vomit and you're like, what is that? Oh my God. And, then you, oh and, my then, God. and this is horrible. This You rinse it off and then you go show the owner, what is this? And they're like, I don't oh. know. Like, oh, that's whatever, X, Y, Z. And I will tell you this on Halloween, Christmas, and like Valentine's Day and maybe Easter, the ER smells like a bakery because it's just dogs vomiting chocolate all day. And you're like, mm, brownies. Like it's disgusting because it doesn't smell like vomit. It smells like baking chocolate cake. Like that's all you get wrappers and everything in there. It's my best Thanksgiving story is this 
Labrador that came in super drunk. And the guy said he, he drank like a bowl of eggnog. And I'm like thinking, okay, raw eggs, whatever. He said, no, 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 no. Let me tell you my eggnog recipe. It's like this, this, this. And then I float like a pint or whatever of brandy on the top. So the dog drank, you know, like a huge mixing bowl of eggnog intoxicated. Yeah. And then yesterday we had a dog that came in that had, that ate a cup of coffee beans and a full thing of like Bailey's Irish liqueur. Like, first of all, how did, how the dog got. Yeah. The dog's like, I want an Irish coffee, but I don't have thumbs to mix it. So I don't have opposable thumbs. So I'm just going to do one after the other. This wasn't my case. So I asked my colleague, I'm like, how did the dog get into the bottle? Oh, knock the bottle, chew the cap. Maybe it was a plastic bottle, but drank it all because it's delicious. <laughs> so you and your partner, your, let's be clear. When I say partner, I mean your business partner. She, she is my platonic life partner like you are with Dawn. So Lori, uh, Lori Waringa now, when I met her, it was um, Lori Vanderheiden. She, we were randomly assorted into um so we were all randomly assorted into anatomy groups so that's how she and I met and we and then we were inseparable and I recall that she was getting married that summer and all of her bridesmaids were friends she had known from childhood and she called me and said I'm adding an extra groomsman so that I can add you as a bridesmaid I was like oh her kids call me auntie Beth like we have known each other since 1997 It's, it's very strange because we have lived together we like we've been roommates we've gone on vacations together like I said I've been at the birth of our kids um we've been in each other's weddings but we've never worked together we've never worked in the we've worked in the same clinics but never at the same time really so this is a great segue to talk about what you're doing now right so I'm so excited we decided it was always on our five-year plan oh we should open an urgent care let's do it for context what kind of care is available at in the vet setting for vets. So there's your basic, um, you call, we call your primary care physician, right? So they're the ones that are going to do your spays, your neuters, your vaccines, your dental cleanings, your, your preventative health care, your dog's vomiting has an ear infection. You would typically go just like your normal primary physician. Yeah. So about 20, cause I remember this about 20 years ago, when I first went into the ER work, these 24 hour specialty facilities were popping up, right? So they were, they were like human hospitals, right? They had emergency departments and ICUs, and they would have an internist on staff and a surgeon and a radiologist and an oncologist and a cardiologist, if you were lucky. So that was a new model. So I, I would have something that would be too critical for us as a primary physician to handle. So I would say, you need to go to one of these 24 hour clinics, your pet needs surgery, your pet needs a blood transfusion, your pet needs whatever. And they would say, what do you mean? You can't do that. It was a new concept. What do you mean? I have to go to yet another vet. So for the past almost 20 years, I've worked in one of those facilities, right? So if your vet is busy and your pet has an ear infection or is vomiting a ton or something, they're like, we can't see you go to the ER, you go to the ER. What's been happening in the past, even before the pandemic, so I'd say handful of years is there's, it's overload, right? The ERs are overloaded, they are understaffed and that was worsened by COVID. And people will show up and they'll be like, well, your pet just has an ear infection. It's going to be a 10 hour wait, right? Because it's, it's a triage system. It's pets taken in order of severity. So all the hit by car pets or the, you know, animals having seizures are going to be triaged right past you sitting in the lobby with your ear infection or your vomiting dog or whatever. It's the same as an, as a people ER, which is if 
you go into the ER with an ear infection, they're going to be like, all right, take a seat. We'll call you when we get to you. See that guy who is clutching his chest? He's going first. Yeah, and we get this. They, they, they assault the front of house staff every five minutes. How much longer is it going to be? Like, literally, they're seeing an animal coding, carrying, pet, or, you know, they'll have to say things like, our staff is actively doing CPR on a pet. Be patient. This is the kind of atmosphere we're dealing with. Just no courtesy or compassion. So it got so bad that, you know, I would be working these ER shifts and just thinking, I, like, I, I feel helpless. And it's not, it's not even just, it was everywhere. It's across the nation, right? Veterinary shortage, staff shortage. Um, it is a nightmare. My friends that are still in that profession, every ER clinic right now is diverting. That's the word we say. We're at capacity, we're diverting, which means one of several things. They have no cages left. They have no staff left to care for, you know, some, especially going into the overnight shift, there aren't enough people in the building to maintain care for what they have. So they have to set limits. You know, Lori and I got together and we were thinking, man, we should open an urgent care, right? So be this middleman, right? You have an ear infection, your vet can't get you in for three weeks because they're super booked up, which happens. You know, you know, in this day and age, your human physician, you call to get your kid in or something. And they're like, we have an appointment in, you know, June, what? January, same thing happening on the veterinary side. So we, we had kind of joked that it was our five-year plan. And I remember distinctly it was March, it was March, 2020, because the pandemic had just sort of hit us soil and everything was just in turmoil. And my late husband had gotten super, super sick from his cancer. So I was home, like kind of taking care of him. We were chatting one day and we were like, we should do this now. In the midst of all this pandemic, sick husband, whatever, like, <laughs> we, should just, like we should do this now. And we we're like, yeah, let's do it. And I remember telling Nate, like, I, I think Lori and I are going to do this. And he said, you can do whatever you want. I'm probably not going to be here. So but we fast tracked it. I want to say October, November of 2020, we got with the bank, we secured a loan. And then in January of 2021, we started looking for property and no one. So the urgent care model doesn't really exist out here there. We Googled a bunch of clinics on the East coast that are doing it. And it's usually either an offshoot of a primary practice or an emergency clinic, right? Meaning it's exists in the same building. And there are a couple of the emergency clinics up here that just launched one. So they basically like opened up another side of the reception counter and they are saying, okay, this is the urgent care side. So we have created, as far as we know, in the Seattle area, the first like fully urgent care only facility. So yeah, within like 18 months, we got the loan, found a building, renovated it. It was actually a prior vet clinic, um, hired staff, which is insane because of the staff shortage. We had people flocking to us to want to work for us because they, we've been in the area so long and with the reputation, like, can we please come work for you? And we're, we're thinking, you guys are crazy. We, this is new. We have no idea what we're doing <laughs> to leave your jobs that you're getting paid fairly well at to take a chance on us was very heartwarming. So we opened on January 22nd of this year, which was my birthday. <laughs> and we, the minute the doors opened, just, and we had done no advertising. So there was a little word of mouth and I had some friends at the ER clinic that I worked at that knew we were going to open. So the first day, I think we saw 15 or 20 patients right off the bat. It wow. was crazy. And then on the third day, I mean, we hit our, our break even point on day three. And so we've been open for a little over for the two, year. For like our, we're like our daily break even point oh, like okay, okay. of like your staffing and your whatever. 
Yeah, right? This, these are this new terminology that I'm learning. <laughs> so we calculated our break-even point and we, we went, oh man, we're there. And so within a month, we had doubled our staff. A month, right? Every day there are clients lined up outside waiting for us to open because there's nowhere else for them to go. The ER clinics say, we can't handle you. Actually, they say, we won't see you. We're done. We're, we're diverting. It's not, your animal's not dying. It's not serious enough to be here. They call their vet. They say, we can't get you in for six weeks. Well, this isn't a problem that can wait six weeks. And this also isn't a problem that you want to go sit in an ER parking lot for 10 hours. We're two months in and we're going to hire an associate veterinarian, which possibly two, that's our dream. And we didn't think that was going to happen. The bank projected we were going to make, I think, a certain amount in the first year. We're already at that amount two months in. Like it's that's awesome. It's, like we hit it, we hit it right, right. And the best part is, yes, it's busy, and yeah, a lot of these, some of these pets are very sick, and some aren't. So we can triage them, we can work them up, we can send them to where we need to go. But I drive home, no longer sobbing in frustration that I can't do anything, right? When you're sitting in these ERs, you know, these people have been bouncing around from clinic to clinic to clinic, just trying to get an ER to see them. And by the time they land on your doorstep, these, these pets are on death's door. They're so sick. So we're like, something has to change. So we had, this is really fun fact. So Phil met at an alumni, an IMSA alumni event in Seattle, um, Didi's Dee Dee's son. She is a reporter for Cairo 7 News out here. So Phil went into PR mode and he's like, do you want her to do a news thing on you? She's doing this whole thing about the veterinary field. I was like, all right. She came out to the clinic, interviewed me and Lori, interviewed clients that were sitting out in the rain in the parking lot waiting for us to open. And then we have like a five minute spot on the news. That's so cool. Here's my thing about being a vet, which is like, you have to know a lot about a lot. Being a medical doctor, I'm not, I'm, this is not to cut down anyone who's a doctor, right? But <laughs> as if that would ever happen. But like, you have to know things about human beings. One animal. Vets have to know things about dogs and cats and birds and snakes and bunny rabbits and ferrets. Ferrets? And pigs and cows. And yeah, we learn all that. And alpacas. And so you might not actually, you're, I know you're not doing like large animal veterinary work, but you have to learn that. So this is a fun fact I know. Name two animals that don't have gallbladders. Okay, I can't. An alpaca and a horse. Nope. I don't know. Horse. Horse is horse one. And, and a rat. A zebra. And a rat. Horses a rat? and rats. Well, I only got two guesses. That's not fair. Okay. No, I remember freshman year, they sold us shirts that said like veterinarians. I can't even, I'm going to butcher it, but it was like veterinarians. We learned seven species. Oh, you only learned one. Like it was very <laughs> elitist. I mean, so that's. I will just put that aside as being like, you have to know all of the things. But I don't, all of those I don't use it. But that's the thing is like, that's I learned not the point. it doesn't matter. Did I learn equine medicine and purge it after my boards? Absolutely. Like, Still that. not the point. To finish vet school, you have to learn all right. of these things. You have things. to learn all these things. To own a vet clinic in, I think the US, but definitely Washington state, you have to be a veterinarian, right? So very few of us have business degrees. We're Googling everything. I had, we had a very great mentor. I had other friends that have done this that I was like, Hey, who do you use for accounting? And how do you do this and that? And can I have your template for like an employee handbook? Yeah. Cause I remember my neighbor had approached me and he said, Hey, you know, I hear your clinic's doing great. That sounds like a great investment. I wish I could get in on it. I was like, that's great. But you can't, I was like, what? you cannot just like own a vet clinic and you know, you gotta be a veterinarian. So unless you find a veterinarian to team up with, 
sorry. <laughs> the VCAs of the world, just throwing that out there, right? Uh, Vet Clinics of America, they are a corporate entity. I don't know if they're like a publicly traded company where they sell shares, but that is the kind of company that you could get in on it. This is like two friends that got together and it started a business. You could, you know what you could do? You can give us money. That's fine. But there's no like, I'm not paying you back out for this. Yeah, yeah. you can pay our half million dollar loan. Yeah, it's really just veterinarians seeing a need and opening a clinic. It's really how it goes. Corporate vet med is, it's unfortunately the new paradigm. However, I have been in the four, four jobs that I've had through like four, five corporate takeovers, right? Corporate mergers, where it was like a small privately owned, whatever, whatever, VCA swoops in or Blue Pearl slash Mars swoops in or NVA. I mean, like, and it's like, they come in with these grand prompts. Oh, we're not going to change. Nothing's going to change. Everything changes. So that's usually when most of your support staff will flee. And then I think us as veterinarians, we just try to hang on for as long as we can. And then they kind of like twist the knife in your gut and change your pay scale or take away your PTO or slap a crazy non-compete. That's another thing, non-competes. Come on, we're pet doctors. Some of my friends that work at the ER, they have an 18 month, 10 mile non-compete, which includes emergencies and urgent care. Where are you gonna go work? This is so densely, this is not Texas where everything's spread out. Like there are 30 vet clinics within a 10 mile radius. You are knocking out a huge employment opportunity and it's, it's bullshit. So, you know, and especially an emergency vet, you do not have a client list. You are not going to take said client list. This clinic that we purchased was from a retired veterinarian that she had been working solo for 20 years she said, do you want to purchase my client list? And we said, no, no, no. We, Cause that's part of the negotiation is you purchase the client list, so to speak. And we said, nah, we don't need it. Cause we're, we're doing urgent care. So yeah, circling back to that, we don't, we don't have vaccines in house. We don't have flea meds. We don't like when you walk into your vet and you see the huge food display, we're not pushing diets. We don't do spays, neuters, dental cleanings. Um, we don't do surgery. We don't, we do like minor stuff. Like we'll sew up lacerations and abscesses and things, but like a major abdominal surgery, like I've been doing for the past 20 years, do not do that. Our, our day is filled with ear infections and skin rashes and limping and vomiting. And sometimes something that you look like looks pretty innocuous. And then you're like, Ooh, this, this pet's really sick. Right. We have all in-house lab capabilities. Wow. Yeah. This is the selling point is, you know, if you'd see your primary vet, they send out blood work for a super, you don't get that back for three to five days. If they're closed on the weekends, which most vets are now because they want to retain some quality of life and work-life balance, you might it might be six or seven days before you get those results, right? If your vet even has time to call you back at all. So we're like, no, we'll run urine in-house. We'll run CBC chem. We have an ultrasound unit. We have digital x-ray. I mean, we don't really send any blood work out. It's all immediate. And then it's either, this is our motto. It's like, patch them up, ship them out. <laughs> it's just it's either, yeah, like we're, we're going to get you, we're going to get you fixed up. You're going to go out the door. You're going to follow up, follow up with your primary. And then, and then if you're super sick or you require transfer to one of the aforementioned 24 hour clinics um, that I used to work at, say your pet needs fluids or major surgery or a specialty referral. Yeah. Boom. So the problem though we're running into is the same problem clients are running into. So now I'm calling as a referring vet 
So I have this list of eight or nine clinics from way, way north of Seattle, all the way down, like past Tacoma into Olympia, which those of you who aren't familiar is 90 miles, right? To Olympia or something like that. I will start calling down the list. Hey, hi, this is Dr. Guerra calling from Arrow Animal Urgent Care. Are you taking transfers? And they'll be like, nope, click, move on. So sometimes they're like, oh yeah, maybe it's a case by case basis. Let me get my receiving doctor on the phone. And then you're put on hold for seven to 10 minutes. And then some poor frazzled ER doctor comes on the phone and they're like, does it need to be cut? Is the first question they ask. Like, no. And sometimes they're like, yeah, no. And so you just move on. Or they'll grudgingly say, yes, you can say, and you can tell in their heart, they're just dying inside because it's too much. So I have actually twice in the past two months sent clients home with pets to ostensibly to die because I could not get them into an ER clinic. Mm-hmm. Right. One had a, what's called a hemoabdomen, which is a um, belly full of blood. That's Greek for bad abdomen. It's horrible, <laughs> right. Um, and then one had a pyometra, which is a uterus, uterine infection, uterus full of pus. And that dog also needed surgery, but these are very sick pets and they're unstable. And I spent 45 minutes calling, pleading, you calling in all my favors as you know, someone who's been in this area forever and done it. And everyone was like, nope. So then you have to go tell a client, I'm so sorry. I, despite my clout, apparently I cannot get you in anywhere. And they're like, I guess I'm going to take my pet home to die. And I say, just show up by this time. It's nine, 10 at night. Cause we're only open till eight. I say, show up at an ER six, seven o'clock in the morning, just be there and tell them what's going on. Usually the staffing is better during the day than overnights because overnights goes down to like bare bones. Yeah. And beg, you know, and say, my pet's already been seen at an urgent care, already been assessed. I haven't, this is like, this is what you have to tell people is to advocate for your pets because they will call ERs and they'll be like, Hey, I'm bringing my pet in. They're like, we can't help you. We can't see you. We're diverting. So then when I'm sitting here, I'm like, okay, this is an animal that's in respiratory distress. This is beyond what we are set up to handle. So you have to go to this ER clinic. Oh, they've already turned me away. You have to say, my pet has been assessed at an urgent care. It needs to be here. Please don't send me away. This is the language we have to tell clients to use to get past what we call the triage blockade. That is insanity. Why is this happening? Like, I I just, yeah. And I've been on all sides of it now and it's horrible. So you're not doing, you're not doing euthanasia now? No, we do do euthanasia. Yeah. So if, if you look at urgent care and we, we modeled this after I spent a long time. Um, Listeners, that is very different from people, urgent care. What? Yeah. <laughs> euthanasia. Yeah. Euthanasia. No. <laughs> Veterinary <laughs> urgent care is exactly like people, urgent care. So if you go to our except website. Except for the euthanasia. No, except for the euthanasia. <laughs> Don't even get me started on that. But we actually have on our website and on these little like flyers that we have, it says urgent care. There's like a column, urgent care, emergency. If you have a cold and you can't get into your doctor, do you go to the emergency room? Nah, you go to urgent care. If you're in a car accident, you've lost your arm. Do you go to urgent care? No, you go to the emergency room. Right. So it, it, see, you know, it seems common sense. It's not, but we have set a certain, it's not limitations. It's parameters, like, you know, seizures, respiratory distress, heavy, uncontrolled bleeding, loss of consciousness, you know. No, ear infections, eye infections, skin infections, limping, vomiting and diarrhea, yeah. you know, cough, sn- sniffle, like, yes, we're, we're kind of training people because one of the problems we're having is the ER clinics who are overloaded 
are now just saying, go to Arrow, go to Arrow. And they're sort of presenting it as an extension of the ER, which is frustrating because then we're like, no, we don't operate on pets here. And then they get mad. And then the primary vets are like, go to Arrow, go to Arrow. And they're like, what, what do you mean you don't have flea meds here? My vet sent me here. Right. right. So it's like, we're having to sort of ugh, retrain everybody. <laughs> I heard you say like, we're teaching the vocabulary. So you're teaching up and down. Like we're teaching sideways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We are having to, tr- it's a new paradigm and it, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of dialogue. Um, our front of house is trained on the phone to be like, to say, tell me a little bit what's going on with your pets. So we can figure out if we're the right model for you, the right place for you, you know, cause if they're saying my pet was just hit by a car and is bleeding from various orifices and is having trouble breathing, we're not the place for you. We don't hospitalize right. patients. We're not there overnight. You know, yeah. we, we will move between like 20 and 40 cases in an eight hour period, which is huge. I, last Saturday I worked alone and I saw something like 42 cases in 10 hours. It was, I was exhausted. I was like, I cannot do this anymore, but it was just, it's 10 straight hours of, I felt like it was just working another ER ship, but these pets cannot get in anywhere else. They need to be seen. That's why we're doing this. And the, the hope is, you know, the goal is, I've heard you talk about this before is like, you can free up people on either side to do what they're supposed to do, right? So if you need to get flea, you have to go in for your, your cat has to go in for their annual checkup and get, you know, get the shots that they're supposed to get. Well, they should be going to their primary care vet. If, if a dog isn't hit by a car or has eaten like two pans of brownies, that person needs to go to the emergency vet clinic and sort of everything in between, which is like, this is the problem. It needs to be taken care of like soon, you don't need to go to the emergency room. You also maybe don't want to wait for three or four weeks to go see your doctor, your regular doctor. That's urgent care. Yeah. So we're freeing, so we're freeing up the emergency rooms from these, I'm not going to say trivial because it's not, if you're concerned about your pet, it's not trivial, but I would say less emergent cases. And then we are also getting to them sooner before they end up back at their primary and it's out of control. You know, like, so like I said, the whole summer when I was past summer, when I was doing relief in the ER, I was seeing animals that were, and this was before we opened that were so sick because they couldn't get into their vet, couldn't get in about three weeks, four weeks. And then they bounced around from ER to ER trying to get in. By the time they hit our doorstep, they were literally on death's door. So that's horrible and heartbreaking. And I'm not saying every case is like that. Sometimes it's just a bad ear infection and you're like, I can fix it, right? Get out. Get out, get done, go about your day. But this has been success beyond our wildest dreams and is also hugely fulfilling. I mean, I haven't felt of use in my profession in at least a handful of years. Like wow. you're, you're working that ER and you're, and you're crippled by staff shortages and burnout. And yes, everyone adopted a pandemic puppy. Like you just come home at night. I did at least, and just cried, just cried for hours and your, your days off. You're so exhausted. You just lie in bed all day. Cause you just don't want it. You're, you can't even face anything. So this is, you know, it's a long day, but you leave and you say, Oh man, I helped 40 pets that couldn't get, and we're going to do it all again tomorrow. I mean, we're already expanding our hours. It's crazy. And I imagine the feeling is like, my clients are thankful. They're grateful, right? They're not 
yelling at me. They're not. So yesterday was a little, I think everyone's dander was up for whatever reason, but yesterday I had a good friend of mine, um, Kristen, who has, I've worked with in the ER for many years, but she did relief with me yesterday so that Lori could have a day off. And then she's there today with another friend. But anyway, they're former ER docs or current ER docs running the floor. And she was like, this is great. It's so diverse and everything's really fast paced and everyone's so lovely because in the ER, people just scream at her constantly and call her horrible names and say that all she cares about is money and don't even get me started on that. And just, you know, you just come home demoralized of of Mm -hmm. thinking all I'm trying to do is help your pet. And all you're doing is just treating me like crap. So our clients are lovely. They say things like, thank you for seeing me. We're so glad you're here. Um, it's wonderful to be able to, you know, work with such loving, caring staff and they're, and they're very grateful. And we say, Oh, we've only been open two months. And they say, are you kidding me? Like, yeah okay, let's ride this train. Like our, yeah. our clients are lovely. That's, that's awesome. So awesome. Yeah. So we, pre- we were prepared to, oh man, we had each saved, um, six months, six months of, I can live on this with absolutely no paycheck. And let's be clear, Lori has two growing boys that are very active and play sports and eat a lot of food. And, you know, she's a single mom and it's like, okay. And we're two very different circumstances. Like I'm widowed living alone with dogs. She's supporting a family. Like her mom was there. And so we're like, all right, let's do this thing where we save up six months that we can live off of in the event that we don't pay ourselves. Cause we didn't, most of the time when you do this, you don't pay yourself for like a year or two. Mm-hmm. So we were just, just now we're like, okay, we can pay ourselves. That's awesome. <laughs> and let's, let's be clear. We're paying ourselves about half of what our normal salary would be like a little more than half. Yeah. So she was medical director of her old hospital. I was working emergency and picking up a ton of shifts. So that, that can be very lucrative in the vet field, right? You got to work for it. So we were both doing that and she worked a ton, a ton, a ton of extras in the past year. It's, it's insane. So now we're like, maybe we're going to pay ourselves a little bit more. Like we're not <laughs> taking any profits yet. That's not even right. 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 Radar. You know, we just wanted to make sure, can we pay our staff? Can we hire you know, these people? But it's like, like I said, we hit our break even point on day three and then we have not dropped below that. Wow. Since That's we opened. Amazing. Wow. That's so awesome. That is so cool. That's, yeah. And I'm not a business person, but that, you know, the numbers look good. <laughs> now you are. <laughs> I was at Starbucks the other day getting coffee and the woman said, oh, I noticed you're wearing scrubs. You know, what do you do? And I was like, I'm veterinarian of a business that I own. And she, the way I said it, she's like, are you, are you sure? Like, <laughs> it's my own guess. It only took 20 years to get here. And anyone, anyone in this field, in this area who knows me knows that I have spent my entire career going, Oh God, I would never want to own a business. Why would you want to do that? You can't ever go on vacation. It's always following you. You're always putting out fires. And here you are. Oh, how times change. But from the second you told me about it, I knew it was going to be just a smashing success. See, that's what everyone said, but we were cautious and we were like, no, no. Well, of course it's, you have to be cautious. It's your life, right? You're filling a niche. You're very good at what you do. You're ex, you're an excellent vet. Thank you. And Despite the fact that you have been doing somewhat thankless ER work that really pushes, pushes your compassion, I have known you when my friends have needed help to be the most kind, caring, compassionate, present vet I've ever mm-hmm. known. Thank you. And 
I, I am convinced I'm not bringing my cats out there, but, um, I'm convinced that that is why one of the, one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why your clinic is just gangbusters because it's hard. I think it's also really hard to, after COVID after, you know, all that's been going on, it's hard to find people who are still compassionate and caring and still bring their best to work every day in a world where it's like this again. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, this again. And to bring your best self to the, this again, every day is amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I do like what I do. I mean, I, like I mentioned earlier, I have colleagues that every day they, they just I hate being a vet and like, don't say that. Like it breaks heart also because, and I went and they, everybody's recognized this. They said, you went way past, like you went so far past burnout. You sort of circled around again and came in fresh. Like I <laughs> are longer than I should have because I genuinely loved it. I worked nights longer than I should have. I, yeah. I went, I ventured into like the realm of crazy where people were like, you're losing it. And then you are, you're the Phoenix. You're the Phoenix. What happens when, when the Phoenix burns out, it comes that back from the ash. Another, another Harry Potter reference. Harry Potter oh reference. my God. We didn't even know what we were getting into. What a great circle to come back to, which is you are the Phoenix of the vet world. I'm the, yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, I wasn't done yet. And I'm like this one, this isn't over. Yeah. You're so excited to go to work now. You know, like I am, I am excited. And my, so our staff is, we're like, we are all ER burnout. Even like Lori did ER for eight or 10 years. We're all, because I think urgent care edges a little bit more towards the emergency side than the primary side. Cause you, you have to be able to recognize when something isn't going right, but our staff are all just people that were in ER for forever and then sort of, and then went to primary practice and hated it Mm -hmm. because if you are an ER person through and through, you know, that that's not going to satisfy you. So now they're on this journey with us and they love it. And they say things like, I love coming to work. I get a lunch break. Guess what? Everybody gets a lunch break every day. That never happens when you're on the floor in ER. These kids do not eat or drink or pee for like 14 hours. Wow. So are you basically saying you, you treat your staff like human beings and not like autonomous that need to just work, 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 work? Yeah, we sat down, like I said, we're trying to change the narrative and it's not only how clients treat us, it's how we interact with people. It's how we let ourselves be treated and how we treat our staff. Like it's so easy to make promises we sat down, we said, we're going to pay them what they're worth. We asked, we asked them in interviews, what do you want to make? What do you think you're worth? And they went, oh, well, currently I'm making, no, 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 no. What do you need to make to live? What do you want to be paid? Because these are all high level people we hired. They have been from the front of house all the way back. They have been in the profession for at least seven years or more. We're, we're going to pay you what you're worth. Mm-hmm. We are going to preserve a work-life balance we're all going to build this together from day one. We had rehearsals of, okay, client comes in front of house. How do you greet them? What do you want to do? Do we want to direct them to a room? We created everything together. And so we said, if you are, if you're the kind of person that wants to be handed a piece of paper, that's like, this is your protocol. This might not be the place for you. If you want to be interactive and bring your experience to us and say, this is how I've triaged in the past. This is how I've set up my flow in the treatment area, as we call it in the past. Mm -hmm. And they did it from, I literally day one, unpacking our inventory and setting up the cabinets. They wrote 
protocols for every, we need, they're like, do we have a euthanasia protocol? Do we have a cremate? No, no. boom, done. On paper, laminated. They just did it without even being asked. This is how amazing our staff is. And they but this is what people will do when you treat them with respect and humanity. People will go above and beyond if they, if they enjoy and truly feel valued. And that's not even above and beyond. That is saying you all are experts. You know what you're doing. So you got, I don't need to tell you how to open the clinic. You figure it out. You, I'm going to focus on what I need to figure out, yeah. which is how, like, what is a break even point and how are we going to like insurance and whatever, I, whatever. Right. And so what a great model. Yeah. And they love it. Of course. I would love it too. If someone's like, Hey, I'm not going to micromanage this piece. Just do it. That is awesome. So I want to be mindful of time, which let's be honest, we do need to give Kosha a break and not give her 10 hours of things to edit. <laughs> so the last two questions we have are that, you know, the one I ask, which is um, what advice would you have for your younger self, someone else going into veterinary medicine and not just like, oh my God, don't do it. Right. No, but right. <laughs> Categorically don't. My, I mean, my main point and this is sort of a revelation I've come to in my own life, but also professionally is if you're not happy, get out, do, do what you want to do. Right. I was, I'm not going to say stuck in a job too long, but I stayed at a job too long. That was emotionally and physically draining because I didn't think I had anything else to do or anywhere else to go. Just do it. Right. Just do the things you want to do because life is short. And this, this also came about, you know, after my husband died a little over a year and a half ago from cancer, he was the kind of like, I'm, you know, let's do it later. Like just simple stuff. Like, nah, we got time. We'll do it later. Guess what? We don't have time. Turns out when you're, you're 46, you could die of cancer. So we have all these gift certificates to restaurants that people gave us for our wedding that we never went to. Cause he's like, oh no, I don't, don't want to do it right now. You're saving it for something. Right. We're sa saving it. Don't wait until you're rich. Like if you want to do something, do it, just yeah. do it, make it happen. Follow your gut. It life is so cliche. Life is too short not to be happy in what you do. And I, I really, he did put a lot of stuff off thinking I'll do it after I retire or I'll do it next year. And guess what? Now I'm left doing these things alone, which sucks. And I think this clinic was part of my like rebirth of the Phoenix is like, all right, now, now what? My life is stalled. I quit my job. My husband died. I, my career is just bouncing around in the ether. Like this whole, you know, vet med thing is crazy right now. Let's change it up. And I never thought 20 years ago when I graduated, I would be a business owner and I would be what a pioneer and open that she and I would open this new model, but guess what? It worked yeah. and it's, it's going well. And I'm finding just like a renewed sense of purpose. I'm not done yet in this field and I'm not going to let it get me down. Like all these people that are having to leave for various reasons. Like I have worked too hard and too long and sacrificed so much, sacrificed so much time that I should have been spending with Nate when he was sick instead working overnights. Like, yeah, you can't, you can't change those things and I can't take back what I've lost, but do the thing you want to do. 
And if you want to be a veterinarian, be a veterinarian. I'm just, <laughs> but I've talked so many people. I'm like, don't do it. <laughs> that is good advice for us all. Not the don't do it part, but the, you know, <laughs> the, the moving forward with what you want to do. And if you have a calling to move forward with it, because, um, you know, it, it is cliche, but it is true that life is too short and you don't like, I, I think about, you know, I have friends who are in the wine industry and people have died with bottles and bottles and bottles of these old vintage, beautiful wines, thousands of dollars worth because they never open that quote special bottle. Literally what I'm sitting on. I have bottles of wine that he was aging that I wasn't allowed to touch. And if you know me, say, I can't touch a wine. I'm going to make now I, I, went in, I went into my little wine closet the other day and I said, this is so dumb. Like he just waited and waited and waited. And now I have all this wine that he will never enjoy. And that I, you know, it's just, it, it sounds so stupid, but it makes me so mad. But the wine also has this emotional baggage for you now. Yeah. Right? So it's like, you can't just suddenly pop it open. Like you, it, it's, no, you're working through it existentially. Like that dog. Was. Just, yeah. <laughs> The pandemic has rewritten all the rules. Just, it's a reset for everybody. Just do it. Yeah, I agree. That is fantastic. And this is, I know, uh, I know you are ready for this one because we talked about it. The last question that we ask is about Familect, which as- Oh, I love this one. uh, (laughs) Yes, I love, right, yeah. Like internal, in small group um, words and phrases that only your small groups know. Can you talk a little bit about like you with Lori, you with Shailashi, you with your family? Give us some examples of your familect. I, so a lot of this, this is funny because this kind of carries over into adulthood, but okay. So story is growing up, my mom and her siblings were t- like not discouraged, but were discouraged from speaking Italian in the household because they were trying to be more American. Right. So as a consequence growing up, I, my brother and I did not learn Italian. Like I did not really find Italian until my forties, early forties and trying to learn. Um, but we had little phrases and terms of endearment and terms of frustration that my mom and dad would use that are derived from Italian. And also my grandparents who spoke English, but like, especially my grandpa, like heavily accented. Uh My mom would always call us like Puka Bell. You, you know this one, Shayla, the, the, the Puka Bell. Like I have it actually tattooed on my wrist because that was her nickname. So she'd say Puka Bella. I don't know where the Puka came from, but that was like a Sounds term. Cute. Yeah, yeah cute. cute. And then my dad's favorite one, if we were being stubborn, he would he would say Testadura, which literally translated, I think means hard, hard head, like hard headed. <laughs> You know, so he'd be like, or, you know, he'd be like, ah, testaruda, capiche. That was a big one. Capiche with a hand gesture. But for the longest time I did, I'm like, what, what does that mean? And it, everybody knows what that means. Do you understand? So yeah. he'd say that. I do like that. He's like, do you understand that you're a hard head? Like <laughs> yeah, pretty, much, pretty much, pretty much. I would say, and Nate loved that. Nate would like totally just be like, capiche. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone understands. Yes. Everyone understands. Um, and he would say like, my dad like talks to himself. <laughs> like if he'll, if he'll, if he's in the kitchen cooking or he'll like drop a pan and he'll be like, ah, Tom, you know, oh. <laughs> he'd be like stupid or he'd be like, he'd go, oh, Maron. that was my, one my brother remember. He'd, he'd be like, oh, Maron, which I think is an expletive kind of, I think it means like, 
ball, like, ah, oh, balls. Like, you know, <laughs> it was sort of his like catch all. You'd hear him scream that out. And I remember the first time my brother and I said that in like a company other than our family. And he's like, no, like he's like, it's gotta like slap it. No, it's like not a word you're gonna use. <laughs> so we would take these little things like outside the family. It was, it was not really understood. Yeah. But you understood yeah. it. That's the thing. We yeah. understood it. Yeah. And Lori and I have weird, like, it's not, it's not family really. It's just weird little bits and bobs that we remember from, I would say almost mnemonics, like weird little things you remember from vet school, stupid things that we made up that will make no sense. I don't repeat them, but like little mnemonics that we made up to remember stuff. Uh, it's like, it's like 20 years later, she'll like turn to me and she'll say something and I'm like, oh, it's just like yeah. some little thing we came up with in the nineties as like a study <laughs> mnemonic that we still remember. That's like awesome family because there are things that I can say to Kosha, Kosha can say to me and like, no, what, even our younger siblings don't really understand it. All right. So I, I hate to bring this to a close, but, um, we are going to say thank you. You were the first in the inaugural, um, April series uh, for Shayla, she's birthday. And I, it was a smashing success. Thank you so much for coming on and, and keeping it a secret. Uh, as hard as that was for you. Thank you so much. I love talking to you. Love talking to you.